world of digital sound. Hello there, good people of the internet. Welcome, welcome. This is Ken and this is another podcast story. I do believe this is number 96. God, we're getting through a few of these, aren't we? Um, right, so we're kind of diving towards number 100, which uh, we'll see the end. And I'm still debating on whether or not to do the uh, number 100 entitled consequences it's uh gonna be quite a difficult one to do i think but um i don't know really it's gonna be a bit sort of touchy-feely and a little bit emotional so you tell me in the comments you tell me if you want me to do it anyway uh so this one today or let's go through the uh, usual disclaimer so anyone mentioned in or out of this podcast may or may not be fictional <laughs> Um, and all names have been changed anyway to protect the innocent unless otherwise stated by me. By me! Um, right, okay, uh, what else? What's the other... Oh, yeah, yeah. All any parts of maybe some of this podcast story may or may not be true. It is up to you, the listener, to decide whether or not you think it is, isn't, or whatever, and leave a comment in the comment section on the YouTube video that this podcast story is attached to. And let me know what you think. Let me know whether... I, I love reading these. I lo absolutely love reading whether or not you think these are true or false. And it, it was really, really funny because it goes in completely different uh, backwards sort of ways. That's the way it works. If I do a podcast story and it's predominantly as best as I can remember it true... Uh, people come, people come in, come in and comment and say, "Oh, what a load of bullshit! That's absolutely rubbish. That couldn't have happened." <laughs> and it just cracks me up. It just absolutely cracks me up. Some of the most outrageous ones are some of the most true ones. <laughs> oh dear! Right, okay. Um, we are going to do this one, and we're going to call this one Gold. 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 Yes, we're going to call it gold. And uh, what is this one going to be about? Well, uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of a potted history. This all happened in 1983. I'm going to have to research that now. <laughs> I think it was 83. And, um, oh God, I was, what, 19, 18, 19, somewhere near there. Maybe 20. And uh, I don't... Yeah, people are going to be saying, how come you don't know how old you were? <laughs> I don't know. I was 19, I think, or 18. Uh, but if you've never heard one of these podcast stories before, then you really have to go back and listen to some of the early ones and get the sort of potted history of what life was like as a youngster in Coventry at that time. Being me, anyway, and what I used to get up to and how I made a living at that time, which was primarily from uh, repossessing cars. Um, when I was 19, I guess I'd been doing it about three years, roughly about three years. Steadier and steadier, I was getting more and more involved with the family. I'm holding up little quotes here. And uh, the back end of it, the fag end of it, you know, can you just go and, like, drive to this place and keep an eye on that for two days? You know, it, those sort of really silly little things. And um, this uh, kind of cemented my relationship with certain members of the family. And um, it was a bit naughty, really. It was, <laughs> it was a bit naughty, but, you know... What can I tell you? I mean, life is sometimes a bit naughty. 
So what we're talking about here is the late uh, latter part of sort of 83. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a, a tiny little bit of a potted history here because 1983 was brilliant. I mean, the, the 82, 83 and 84, they were fantastic years, just absolutely fantastic. Everything about those years for me was just... Oh, it was beyond my wildest dreams. All of a sudden, you know, um, we were we were all out there, and we'd we'd got our own apartments, and we were dating girls, and girls were staying over. We were doing clubs all the time. We had money. We had cars. We had everything. I tell you what. At that time, I had a Mark III Capri. No, don't laugh. A Ford Capri Mark III. And I tell you, it was a little bit special. Well, just normal one. It was a little bit special <laughs> because um, it was a 2.8 injection, which meant it was one of the most beautiful cars ever. Um, and it was fast as fuck. Well, you say that, but I mean, it probably it was about 120, 130 mile an hour car. I've got a now I've got a, a Mark V Golf that can do 130. <laughs> it's, it's a two-litre, you know. It's, it's not even turbocharged. So, so you know, the, everything in perspective. But at that time, it was just a fantastic car. And um, we had a company in Coventry. Actually, they weren't in Coventry. I think they were in Nuneaton or Bedworth. Uh, Bedford? Bedworth? One of them. Um, and that, that company was called Tickford. And Tickford used to take Capris and turn them into things of beauty. They did it with a lot of cars. Um, kind of like, it, it was kind of like what Cosworth does, uh, where they, you know, they take a base car and they turn it into something absolutely magnificent. Well, Tickford did exactly the same thing. Please look them up. I must look them up, actually, after this and go, go and see if they're still around or whatever. But they used to um, put full-body kits on the cars, they would change the rear spoilers. They changed the interior, the dashboard. The engine got tuned. It, they were fantastic. And my white 2.8i, <laughs> and the eye was important. There were a lot of eyes going around in those days. 2.8i Ford Capri Mark III. And it was a thing to behold. It was absolutely fucking gorgeous. It got me so much putang. I will... Oh, man. I, I just had to drive that car into the city centre, right? <laughs> On a Friday night. And, you know, do it at about sort of 2am if you're still sober. And the girls would be falling over themselves. You'd only have to, you know, mention your sports car. And yes, I know it's not a sports car, but I called it that. Mention your sports car in a nightclub and the girls would be falling over you. That, it was a different time back then, you know. The, the, girls, um, the girls were a lot less feminist well, I say there were a lot less feminists. There was a lot of feminine, feminism about, but girls were girls, and they were there. They were there, basically, and their entire lives were dedicated to um, looking fantastic, having boys fall over themselves just to get a look at them. You know, it was, it was that sort of time. It was, it was very strange, compared to now, anyway. Very strange. It was a good time, a better time. Um, God, 
so there, there were the, the best of everything happened in the in the uh, early eighties, uh, the mid eighties. There were things like you know the, the police were in the charts, you know, with every breath you take. Um, you know, David Bowie was still making music. Culture Club was there. Duran Duran was there, you know, and we had all of this thing going on. Lionel Richie uh, had All Night Long. Uh, Michael Jackson was there with uh, the Beat It, you know, and Billie Jean stuff. So there was, there was just so much, so much about. Um, oh God, Star Wars, Return of the Jedi, um, War Games, Superman 3, Flashdance, for Christ's sake. That's when Flashdance came out. And it was beautiful. It was fantastic. Octopussy. I remember going to see that at the pics. Um, you know, it was just, it was just brilliant. I, I remember some stupid bitch talking me into going to see but the one bad thing about that year was some stupid bitch going to take me to see Yentl oh fuck you know <laughs> never saw her again but there was a lot of other things going on at the same time and uh you know uh Margaret Thatcher won the elections landslide victory for Margaret Thatcher and everyone was going yay Margaret Thatcher the US deployed cruise missiles at Greenham Common and this is what I mean about feminism. There, were, there was this incredible movement of brave and uh, in incredible women that came out of nowhere. These, these weren't activists. These were housewives. These were, um, these were mothers. These were sisters. These were factory working girls. They all of a sudden descended on Greenham Common and made this amazing camp, protest camp. And it was all women. And it, it was just incredible. And you see it on the news all the time, all about these amazing women and what they were doing. And, you, you know, the, your average sort of woman from down the road uh, was, you know, the sort of woman that your mum would meet in the shopping centre. She'd be there doing interviews saying our cruise missile was wrong. It was an incredible, incredible time. There was so much going on. There was just so much going on. Um, oh, God. What to, I'm just trying to think, what to, you know, maybe I, I ought to do a, a thing and uh, have a look at some of the other things that went on. But the reason why I remember this one is two things happened. Right. And that's what this story is all about. Uh, one, seatbelts. Seatbelts became compulsory. It was illegal to not have your seatbelt on in 1983. That's when they brought in the law. You must wear a seatbelt if you're in the front seat. Not in the back seat, not that time, but the front seats, you had to wear a seatbelt. Okay, now that's, please remember that during the, during the rest of this story. Um, what else happened? Christ, unemployment was ridiculous. Um, everyone hated Margaret Thatcher because they knew what she was going to do to the manufacturing industry and how she got into power is beyond me. But I think it was because it's pretty typical, you know, it's like the next election. There isn't a viable alternative. And so people went with, you know, the, the best of the worst. And that's how Thatcher got in. And, and people knew she was going to knack a British industry and, you know, take on the unions and destroy it. But, you know, the, they voted for her anyway. Uh, so all this shit was going on. Um, the IRA were bombing us. The IRA were bombing us on a regular basis. 
quite often on the news. You'd hear it, you know, bombs gone off. Um, in December, which is roughly around where this story is set, there was a, a massive bomb in London, huge bomb in London. You know, it was just, it was incredible. It was just, it was like the worst of everybody and the best of everybody, but all at the same time. So let, let's, that's potted history of what it was and where we were. And what were we doing? Well, we were, we were drinking. We were um, going out with girls. We were driving around in our flash cars. We were living in our lovely little flats, uh, apartments. And, uh, you know, I don't think, I didn't have the big flat at that time. I had, the, uh, my flat was quite small at that time. It was on a third floor of this private um uh, development and it was the place I rented and it only had three floors and it had a balcony on the top and no one could oversee it no it's it was really nice little flat but it was really nice and um I was there for Christ all of 1983 and it, it was just it was just brilliant and the friends I had oh god the friends you would die for your friends you would literally die for your friends and they would die for you and it, it was such a, an incredible camaraderie between everybody. Everyone in your clique was there for each other. And everyone had the same thing in mind. No drama. There was no drama. It was all about having a good time. Let's have fun. I don't know. I see young people today, you know, and like Dan's got his uh, clique of mates. And I've got a lot of people that... Uh, I still talk to on Facebook and stuff, a lot of younger people. And that their whole lives seem to evolve around one drama to the next. And if they haven't got a drama in their life, they're not happy. And it's just so, so wrong. Kids now, I swear, they have no idea that there is a life outside of that. You know, there is a life that evolves around a bunch of guys or a bunch of girls having a good time, enjoying life to the absolute full, absolute full, and taking every piece that life has to offer them. There's no need to feel sad. There's no need to feel angry, you know, and there, there's no need to bully other people. And to, oh, I'll go off on one. But it was a different time when I was that age, and it was a better time, a much better time. So uh, work-wise... We were repoing cars and we were doing the odd bit, the, the odd job here and there for other people. Um, the cars that we were repoing and a lot of, quite a lot of these garages, garages are out there at that time. Coventry was full of garages selling cheap cars. And uh, if you couldn't afford a cheap car and I buy a cheap car, I mean, less than a grand. Garages absolutely full of cars for less than a grand. Most of them less than 500 quid. And, you know, you could go to one of these garages and you could say, I want that one over there. All oh, right. OK. Can I have that on the never? Yeah, that'll be like, you know, 30 quid a month or whatever. And uh, or, you know, 20 quid a week. And y you would take it. There'd be no paperwork changed hands. <laughs> and if you didn't pay, then two things would happen. The garage owner would phone me or somebody like me, I would get my boys together and we would go round and repossess the car. Easier said than done on a lot of occasions. 
And then the second thing that would happen is the guy would make a phone call to a few bouncers or whatever, and they would go around and collect the money. We weren't, we weren't that. We weren't the heavies, you know. We were able to handle ourselves if shit got real while we were repoing a car. Um, but we were very good at what we did. We had a lot of money doing it. Um, thank you very much. It was a very nice life. So um, the fag in work we did for the family, as I say, it was kind of, you know, the, the, the family, the, there was different arms of the family doing different things. There was, there was the uh, protection aspect, the, um, Christ, money laundering. There was the robberies. There was the, you know, all of these different things that they were into. And the higher up the family member, the more dodgy shit they were into. And you could guarantee if there was a major robbery in Coventry or the surrounding area, then the family were involved. Right? It's just absolutely the way it worked. And if the family were involved, chewing gum's going in, uh, chances are that at some point during the planning process, they would have used us. So what do they use us for? Right. Staking out somebody's house. And I, I know if the, if it's it's wrong i know it's wrong and it's wrong now and it was wrong then but you know i'm sorry um staking out somebody's house looking at the movements of a bloke his wife and maybe his kids reporting that back you catch his movements every day and if he's a guy that's working in a bank and you go as the family used to do two of you might go around the house and let themselves in hold the family there not do anything to them not tie them up or any of that shit just get them to sit there and then the wife phones the husband at the bank who says look there's two guys here you need to talk to them and then they'll get on the phone and say right there are two men going to enter your bank you're going to escort them down to the vault and you know they're going to help themselves and then they're going to walk out there was a lot of that went on right a lot of that went on or the other side of the coin we might have to sit outside um uh in a street maybe a quarter of a mile away from a bank and then for whatever reason they would set the alarm off at the bank how they did it you know i don't know but they would set the alarm off at the bank and we'd be there to time point of alarm to point of arrival of the police and then we report that back so there was a lot of grunt work these guys didn't do their own grunt work we did it so and we got paid for it and uh it was very nice thank you very much and we're very happy with that now those of you who have heard these podcasts before will know that our routine was basically as follows every night we'd be in my flat okay guaranteed every night or if it wasn't my flat, it was one of the other boys' flats at that time. And uh, actually, there was three of us lived around the sort of same apartment complex. So we'd be in each other's places. Anyway, um, on a Friday, we'd go to the pub. I won't tell you which pub it was, actually, because that's just unfair. But we would go to the pub. We'd have a few beers. We would all meet up at the pub. We would all get in our cars, go into town, and go to a nightclub, usually Buster's. Friday night was usually busters. Uh, Saturday night, pub, busters, out at one, Park Lane, which was another nightclub. Sunday, it was probably either just a pub night if we drank ourselves stupid and then back to one of the houses. Uh, Usually, 
it was a question of, you know, if you meet a girl... <laughs> God, this is going to sound bad. If you meet a girl on the Friday, you take her out on the Sunday. All right? <laughs> if you meet the girl on the Saturday, you take her out on the Sunday. And chances are what we'd do is we'd go for a meal somewhere, you'd meet somebody, go for a meal somewhere, then all meet up at a pub or a club later. Or all meet up at, um, I don't know, uh, my flat or their flat or somebody's flat. So that's how it worked. And on this particular weekend, we were all in the pub. Well, one of the family members comes in Everybody says hello to him. Everyone knows everyone else in this pub. Everyone's at it. The whole pub's bent, right? <laughs> if you weren't bent, you weren't in that pub. Simple as that. It was a very nice pub. There was never any trouble in there. Very rarely was there any trouble in there. Because chances are, if somebody came in and wanted to have a go at somebody else, you could guarantee at any one time in that pub, there would be at least 20 people armed. <laughs> And I have seen it. I did see one particular occasion. I, I go off on a tangent, but one particular occasion, there was a guy who got pepper sprayed, right? Now, it wasn't an act of violence. It was... Somebody got hold of a can of pepper spray. I mean, don't ask me where from. But somebody got hold of a can of pepper spray. They went to uh, some party and thought it would be funny to let off this pepper spray at this party. <laughs> Only they completely destroyed the party. And the person that did it wasn't aware of what it was going to do. He thought it was going to be funny and everyone was going to be coughing. There'd be white smoke in the air and stuff. And it wasn't like that at all. There was a lot of very, very sick people. Um, a lot of people got it in their eyes, got it in their throats. A lot of people went to hospital because of it. And it was somebody's 50th or something like that. And he ruined the party. Anyway, uh, and he was a mate of somebody that had been invited. So it wasn't as if he was a member of the family or any of that. And somebody from the family was connected to some thug who worked at one of the factories. And he came down with four mates from the factory and decided to come and get fuck out of this guy. <laughs> so we're all sat in the pub. These guys come in. Front door opens and everyone looks across. And now, it was a very open plan pub, right? And no matter where you were, when those doors opened and they were big bloody double doors, two things happened. A, you got a big draft of cold air. <laughs> they never did solve that. And B, because the doors made such a fucking noise when they opened, everybody looked around. So you couldn't walk in the pub without being noticed. Well, you could if you came in the back way, but these guys come in the front, doors open, cold air. Everybody looks. They're stood there with uh, one of them had a cricket bat, another one, <laughs> another one had a uh, what looked to be a truncheon. Uh, there was one of them with um, a kind of whatever he made himself out of a piece of bloody tree, and uh, they stood there, and it got quite quiet. And they said, right, where's Rura? And he, he's 
came forward and went, look, I've apologised for this. I've apologised. I don't want any shit. I'm really, really sorry. And (laughs) these guys went, too late, son. And the barman went, oi, not in my pub. Well, these these guys didn't take any notice. And uh, he said, I'm not warning you again. It's not happening in my pub. And these guys carried on, st- still kept coming. So the barman just kind of looked across the room and went, Gentlemen! And all you heard was... <laughs> Guns being cocked. Must have had, they must have had at least ten handguns pointing at them. And from wherever, I don't know where it came from, a sawn-off shotgun. <laughs> and the barman, these guys stood there in their tracks, and I swear one of them shit himself, because I'm sure he farted. <laughs> and the barman went, I told you, not in my pub, now fuck off. Well, I don't know. I don't know quite what happened um, (laughs) after that. Anyway, that's the sort of place that this pub was. Locals used to drink in there occasionally. Occasionally, very rarely, you would get um, new people moved into the area. (laughs) I know, Davina. Let's go and try the local hostelry, shall we? Oh, that's a good idea, Martin. And then. Doors would open, those two would stand there and go, Oh, it looks nice. And Martin would go, I don't think I like it in here, Davina. <laughs> Maybe another pub we might want to go and frequent. And they would leave. So it was very rare that any locals, anybody actually came to that pub that wasn't um, bent. Uh, and by bent, I don't mean gay, I mean bent. Everyone was bent in those days. Um, there was a there was a classic saying like that this guy or that guy is so bent his pictures won't even hang straight on the walls <laughs> a lot of cockneys as well do a lot of cockneys in this anyway right we're sat there guy walks in member of the family we know him on <coughs> excuse me we know him on nodding terms okay we would certainly not high enough up a tree to go and talk to the bloke or open our mouths unless he spoke to us. We knew our place. Simple as that. It's it's a, a thing called respect. Something else people don't have these days. But it was a thing called respect. And that guy had got a lot of respect. And it wasn't a question of he earned my respect. His reputation earned my respect. And I think that's that's the way it used to be back then. Well... He come in, he walks through the pub, shakes a few hands, taps a few people on the shoulder. What? What? How's it going? What? What? And then he, he came past our table and there was probably 15 of us sitting on our table. And he came past our table and he went, what, boys? <laughs> we were like, oh my God, he spoke to us. Oh, uh, Good evening, sir. What? Respect. I like it. And then he went over to the bar. Well, he was over there for an hour or so. And we were getting all sort of clued up to uh, go. And bear in mind as well that it was November time. So, you know, it's cold out. It ain't great. 
and uh, we're talking about Christmas, what we're going to be doing for Christmas, and a couple of the lads wanted to go somewhere hot, they wanted to take a holiday, and we were talking about that, and we, you know, family and all the rest of it, and what we're going to do, and a couple of the guys didn't have any family, uh, not in Coventry anyway, so... They, they were like, oh, well, we don't know what to do. Well, you know, you you come round to ours. You come round to ours. I'll tell you what, I'll go and see my mum in the morning and then I'll go round to my place and then, like, you, me and him and uh, and and we'll all, you know, we'll have Christmas dinner at mine. And, uh, you know, it's this sort of thing sort of thing we did. We looked after each other. Um, and anyway, you know, much to my amazement, um... I get a tap on my shoulder. I turn around, and it's this member of the family. I won't say his name, because he will have me killed. He's probably still in prison, actually. But anyway, he would have me killed, even if he was. So I would turn around and go, uh, yes. And he said, you boys interested in earning a few quid? And I went, yes, absolutely, sir. Right. So be at my place in the morning. Lock up. 9.15. Don't be late. And we went, OK, thank you, sir. Thank you. And he went. And we were all like, fucking hell. Fucking hell. What's this in? Bloody hell. He's got something for us. Oh, fucking hell. Fucking hell. And we were all excited about it because we didn't know what it was. I mean, it, it wouldn't be somebody at his level that would call us if it was just a silly stakeout or you know, doing some recce on some bloody bank or whatever. So we were all, like, really excited. And uh, after he went back to the bar, you noticed a change in the air around you. People were looking at you with a, a wry smile and just kind of nodding in appreciation, as if to say, Welcome to the club, boys. Welcome to the club. And we were like just so excited. And we were all like, what can it be? What can it be? What can it be? And we're saying, you know, well, what's he going to ask? What's he going to What's he going to do? And we did, there's all of this like going on. We were too excited. We didn't do the club. We didn't want to do the club anyway because we thought, well, we're not going to, you know, I don't want to be awake till, um, you know, sort of two, three in the morning because I want to be fresh. I want to be suited and booted and ready to walk. And uh, sure enough, back to my place, few drinks, little chat to the girls. Girls are proud as punch that we are going up in the world because that's certainly how it felt to us. And uh, we're absolutely chuffed to little bits. And, it, you know, it's just amazing. It was an amazing year. Amazing things were happening to us. We were all growing into men. We were growing into men. And men who were going to be part of the family. Oh, God. It was amazing. So, anyway, following morning, suited, booted. Everybody's out my outside my place at 8.30. Bit early. Because <laughs> it's only a 20-minute drive. <laughs> Especially on a Saturday morning. But we drove anyway to the lock-up. As we drove in and described this place to you, you've got to think of it as a, a piece of land and about 50 feet away from the front 
fence where there's two uh, gates. About 50 feet away from that is a, a warehouse unit, a lock-up unit. It had space on either side of it, so you could drive all the way around it. It had space at the back of it, a load of cars parked there, cars parked on the side. There are no markings on this place. There is nothing to say what this place is. And there is a guy in a suit at the gate. And um, we turn up. And sure enough, gate's open. We drive in, we park. Now, all of us went. And there was 10 of us. Because he didn't say how many you wanted. So everyone was that was at the table that night, not the girls, a bit sexist, I know, but the girls didn't do this sort of shit. <coughs> See, that's another aspect to it. The girls were more than happy to let us go and do the work and for them to reap the benefits. If we had a good night, even if we didn't have a good night, the girls we, we hung around with would never, never expect to pay for a drink. They would never have to put their hand in their pocket. From the moment they went out that night, they could have gone out without any money in their purse. Every one of them. Because they knew that it didn't matter what it was. If we were going out for a drink, out for a meal, paying for taxis, anything, there was no way that we would allow any of the girls that we were with to buy anything. And that maybe is a sexist thing. To, I suppose in this day and age it would be. But the girls knew, especially, that if we had a really, really good night, then we would be drinking, um, you know, well, I wasn't a big champagne drinker at the time, but, you know, I might have a few bottles of whatever and the girls would get a bottle of champagne. And that's the way it was. That's just the way it was. They weren't freeloading off us. They weren't gold digging. They weren't having to sleep with us for this. It was about a whole group of people sometimes an extended group of people and everyone had a place in that the girls didn't want to get involved in bloody shit that we got involved in they didn't want to repo cars but I didn't particularly want to clean my flat and it was quick pro quo you know it's just the way it was so anyway there was ten of us all the boys that had been there at the table that night and we had gone out that day from our various flats with all the girls that we were with, very, very excited. They knew what was going on and they were so pleased for us, you know. And it was all... They were really, really excited about it. We were excited about it. Anyway, we, we went into the lockup. Inside the lockup, you've got... Um, Christ, uh, probably... I don't know, really, size-wise... It was a small warehouse, not a large warehouse, small warehouse. And it had within it an office area, a kitchen, kitchenette type thing. It had um, uh, toilets and then there was the warehouse. At the back of the warehouse, there was shelving units with a few pallets on. Middle of the warehouse, there was, you know, just boxes and crates and shit lying around. 
and uh, you know on the left there might be a, a rack of clothes on the right there might be you know 20 tires you know th there was all sorts of shit in this place now we were there suited booted and looking gorgeous and uh, our man that had spoken to us in the pub came out of the office our boys hello <coughs> hello <laughs> and he said right how many cars you bought and uh said well uh we're in three cars right okay he said um how many of you can drive so we're gonna all drive right he said there are 10 cars at the back of this lockup with the keys in what you need to do is take those 10 cars drive to london I will give you specific locations. You will collect a package, put it in the boot of the car, and drive north. Uh, north where? Nope. That's not what I said. Just drive north. And I will be in contact with you with further instruction when you've got the packages. And I'll give you your destinations. Right, okay. He said, now look. What you're going to be collecting is heavy. Each box that you guys pick up, and you'll be picking up one each, is heavy. So make sure that you don't drop the box. That you are fit enough to be able to lift the box because <clears throat> you're not going to get any help. I said, are these boxes big? Nope. He said, these boxes are about two feet by two feet by one foot. Okay. He said, there will be wooden boxes and there will be rope handles on each side of these boxes. You, you pick the box up, you put it in the boot, you drive. You don't speak to the guy you're collecting the box from. You don't even coerce with the milkman if he happens to meet you on the doorstep. You knock the door, the door opens, you get a box, you put it in a car and drive north. And do not stop. Do not stop. Okay, so I'm still confused about where we're going said there will be a piece of paper on the box that will tell you where the destination is okay and then what we just drop the box off and uh, no 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 just take it to the destination and I thought that's really vague the fuck okay so anyway we went to the back Ten cars at the back, and we all chose our cars. Now, I chose a Cortina, because there was a two-litre S there, and I rather fancied it. So I took that. Got the other guys. One guy took a really shitty old Merc. Another guy took a Beamer. There was a couple of Ford Escorts. <coughs> and we stood at the back. All these cars were full of fuel, we were told. And we... We're told to go. 
we looked at each other and we all knew exactly what we were going to get. But not one of us said a word. The smiles had gone. The laughter had gone. Because we were not, we knew what we were into. We knew what we were going to head down there for. A few days before all of this kicked off, the headline story around the entire world was the Brinks Mat robbery. London, November 1983. A bunch of blaggers went into a Brinks Mat warehouse at Heathrow Airport in London and they got away with three tons of gold bars. All of a sudden, everything made sense. We were collecting because they would have distributed this stuff as widely across their local area as they possibly could. If one of them got caught, then maybe one of them got caught with one of these boxes. But if they were all in the same place, if all three tons were in the same place, they'd lose everything. So they split it all up. That's the way these things worked. Six of these guys, six blaggers, did Brinksmat. Three tons of gold bars. Now, back in the day, I guess that would have been, what, 30, 40, 50 million? I don't know. I hate to think what it would be worth in today's money. It must be 100. It must be 100 million. There was also other things that went. And these are the things that weren't commonly known. There were diamonds as well. Diamonds and cash. These guys had hit a fucking jackpot. And that was very obviously why we were involved. They needed to move it out of London. They couldn't have local faces. Every single local face would have been being watched. The, every single copper in the United Kingdom was somehow involved in Brink's map. Everybody who had ever broken into anywhere was being watched. Everyone was a suspect. But nobody knew us. Nobody knew us from Adam. Who were we? Some bunch of kids under 20 driving around London in beat-up cars. We, we were nothing. They wouldn't even look twice at us. Because nobody would have suspected that a bunch of guys our age would have been involved in something like this. So off we went. Now me, I had to get down to Hammersmith. The other boys had different addresses. Took me, God, a few hours to get down there. It was probably one o'clock by the time I got into the street. And I wasn't happy. Because in this street, I must have passed at least three cars 
of people. Now that's really weird. You know, that's really weird. People sat in cars reading newspapers. Pretty obvious to me that they were being watched. So I thought, up here for thinking, down there for dancing, I'll go round the back. So I parked my car. I couldn't park exactly outside the house, but I parked two or three cars down. Went through a little alleyway to go and see if I could find the back of this house. Well, I got to the back of the house and there's two guys stood there having a fag. Both in suits, both in shiny boots, just having a fag. Obvious coppers. Absolutely fucking obvious coppers. So I'm thinking, okay, I need to find a phone box. Two streets away, I managed to find one, and I phoned back. And I spoke to, not the guy that had recruited us, but one of his uh, minions. And I said, this place is full of Bill. Absolutely full of it. They're around the back. They're in the street. They're absolutely all over the place. He just said to me, you're being paid to do a job. Just do it exactly as you were told to do it and follow your fucking instructions. thought, okay. And maybe I'm thinking, this is why they've employed us. Because we're all quite handy behind the wheel. Maybe they want us to grab these boxes and then lose the bill in traffic. And if that's the way it is, then I'm certainly going to earn my money today. That's for sure. There was no way in at the back, not without going past these two coppers. So I went up to the front door, knocked twice. Door opened. What he gave me was a wine crate, almost. Two rope handles, one on each side. And... He handed it to me. I picked it up. I really fucking struggled with it. I mean, I wasn't a weakling, you know. But this thing was fucking heavy. <laughs> and of course it was heavy. I was carrying a bloody box of gold, for fuck's sake. Took this thing to the back of my car. Opened the car, put it in the boot. No messing, boot down, in the car, fuck it, I am out of there. Exactly what I was told to do. I'd grabbed a bit of paper, and uh, on the bit of paper was an address in Nottingham. Right, fuck it, get out of here, head to the motorway, get up the M1, and get this thing delivered. And off I went. Well, as soon as I pulled out, the car pulled out behind me. And I knew I was on the tail. I knew I was on the tail. I did two side streets, two lefts, two rights, another couple of lefts. He's still there. 
I booted it through a red light. Took a very, very sneaky left. Didn't have a clue where I was going. Took a right. Left again. I was out of there. Foot on the floor. On the way to the motorway. Yeah, caught in traffic, but... I couldn't see him. And I thought, well, maybe the cops have um, swapped cars. You know what they do when they surveil? And I was thinking, fuck it. And I was getting a bit paranoid. But I started to do a bit of left and right again. Through the streets, heading for the road signs. Eventually, I hit the motorway. Motorways are very easy places to spot when someone's behind you because you can do some right silly shit on a motorway. You can speed up, you can slow down, you can overtake, undertake, you can boot the shit out of it and see if anyone is going to boot the shit out of it behind you. And from where I was sat, it looked clear. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. I've actually fucking got away with this. And I headed straight to the location where I was meant to be delivering this. I got about as far as... um, Christ. The third set of services on the motorway. And... uh, The traffic had... tipped out a little bit. Um, wasn't, you know, wasn't that bad at all. And, uh, I'm, I'm now thinking I'm, I'm well in the clear. I've got the radio on. I'm listening to the radio. I'm having a fag out the window. I'm smiling to myself. I'm sitting there smiling, thinking what clever cunt I am. And then it happened. car got in front of me one at the side of me another one on the hard shoulder blues and twos everywhere and they pulled me to a halt I had absolutely nowhere to go the one in front was a Range Rover so I was fucked I knew I was fucked you don't piss around with a Range Rover um I didn't really see any point in damaging the car because I wasn't going to get away and I didn't really want to piss these cops off. Next thing I know, they're out in all fucking directions. Guns at the ready, pointing in my direction, pointing at my head. Show me hands, show me hands. Well, they dragged me out of the car and put me on the floor. And then I noticed that there was absolutely no other traffic around. They'd actually run a rolling roadblock. Uh, How I missed it, I don't know. But they were obviously very fucking good at what they did. Because there wasn't another car in sight. They'd stopped the traffic on the motorway. In both directions. 
at Leicester. And I just couldn't believe it. I'm lying on the floor. I have got handcuffs on. And bear in mind, this was the 80s. These were the old handcuffs. I've got cops frisking me in a manner that you would never want to be frisked. (laughs) To say they were rough would be a distinct understatement. And uh, then they stood me up and took me to the back of the car. What's in the boot? I said, I had no idea. And they got the keys, opened the boot. And we're all happy, fucking smiling, almost high-fiving each other, if high-fiving was around in those days. Very, very fucking pleased with themselves. And they wanted to open the crate. Well, as I said, there was no lock on the crate. It was just kind of box, really, wooden box made of wooden planks. And uh, one of the coppers got a bar out of his car, came back, and cracked open the top of the crate. And for a second, just for a second, I absolutely was convinced that he was going to hit me with the bar. And he was stopped by another one of his mates. And he was shouting at me, and he was... He just lost it. He lost the fucking plot. Where is it, you fucking bastard? Where is it? And uh, I was literally being protected by the other cops that got me, you know, one on each arm. And I was like, what are you on about? What are you on about? Where is it? Where is it? And they were restraining him. This, this copper had just lost it. Well, I didn't see what was in the crate. I couldn't see it from there because it was in the boot and they threw me into the back of the police car and um, it was it was just mad next thing I know um, I'm in a police cell in Leicester and uh no um, booking in. They didn't book me in. They just took me straight through the area, the um, booking area, and straight into a cell. Bang. Left cuffs on. I'd never had that before. Never never been nicked when they'd left the cuffs on. Not by the time you get to a cell, they usually take them off. And there was a lot of shouting going on. There were... There was a lot of phone calls happening. I don't think the police in Leicester were very pleased with them at all. And uh, next thing I know, door opens and coppers stood there in uniform. You want a cup of tea, son? And I was about to say yes. And a hand came over the front of this copper And he just said, this fucker gets nothing. Pulled him away and shut the door. Four hours I was in there, still cuffed. 
Uh, no phone call, no lawyer, no nothing. Wasn't even booked in. And then two suits come in. And uh, they take me out of there. Put me in the back of a, a car. And um, off we pop. Um, they took me back to London. And the next time they spoke to me was on the Sunday morning. At which point they started giving me absolute fucking heavies. Uh, where's the gold? What do you know about Brinks, Matt? Uh, do you know this guy? Do you know this guy? Have you heard this name? They were showing me pictures. And all I was saying was, get me a fucking lawyer. They hadn't allowed me to have a phone call. No one had booked me in. There was nothing. And it was just really, really weird and really unusual. Um, I've been nicked enough times to know, even by then, even by that age, that there are procedures that they go through. Procedures didn't seem to apply to these fuckers. I've still got the handcuffs on. Uh, they had taken them off overnight, but they put them back on when they took me to the cell. Oh, and they took me to the interview room. So I've got the handcuffs on. They're in front of me. My hands are on the table. And one copper leans over, grabs the chain between the handcuffs, pulls it towards him and punches me straight in the face. And he knocked me clean off the chair. I was shocked and in shock. I didn't expect it. It happened too quick. He didn't seem to be violently aggressive. He was verbally aggressive, but he didn't seem to be violently aggressive. And I read him completely wrong. I wasn't ready for it. Two guys sat me up back on the uh, back on the chair. He asked me the questions over and over and over again. And I just kept saying to him, get me a fucking lawyer. Maybe five, six times during that interview, he slapped me around the head. Either from getting up and walking behind me or just leaning over the table, slapped me around the face. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when uh, the group that had interviewed me and they were doing it in relays took me back to the cell so I'd been interviewed uh, for the best part of eight hours straight and I was fucked they wouldn't let me smoke they hadn't given me anything to drink they hadn't given me any food and I'm sitting there in the cell thinking fuck me these fuckers are going to make me disappear And it just seemed that that's the road they were going down, you know. But no. Door opened. Hello, my name's Mr. Sussurch. I'm your lawyer. Let's have a chat. I told him what happened. I told him 
that I wasn't going to be a, I wasn't going to be naming any names that somebody had asked me to collect a box from A and deliver it to B and it turns out that they were some sort of lead ornaments that were in the crate and the place I was delivering them to uh, he'd apparently said that he'd bought them so that he could put them into an auction and he bought them through a mutual friend from a guy in a pub and it was cash on delivery and he didn't know anything other than that well the police knew it was a load of bollocks and I just said look I'm not going to name any names a guy did this he asked me to drive a car go and collect these and deliver them to this dress and then he uh, <laughs> he said to me your mates are here I said sorry I said your mates I said, which mates? He said, there's uh, six of your friends who had exactly the same things in the boot of their cars when the police stopped them. Oh, right, okay. He said, now you can talk to me because I'm your lawyer. And I said, I wouldn't trust you as far as I could fucking throw you, mate. (laughs) Lawyer or not. You're not my lawyer. I don't know you from Adam. And I ain't telling you shit. So I stuck to my story. As it turned out, he was uh, all right, that brief. Um, We went to the front desk. Uh, They signed me in and uh, obviously cooked the books to say that I'd arrived the day before. So they booked me in a clear sort of 20 hours (laughs) after I'd actually arrived. And they said, right, we can hold you now for 48 hours and you'll be questioned. And uh, my brief said to the duty sergeant, uh, you can hold him for another 48 hours because you didn't book him in yesterday. And we can go to the divisional commander and show him the fucking mark on this guy's face that happened while he was in this station. And I thought, oh, fuck me, you are a good brief. And the duty sergeant was all sort of, well, I can only go by what's written down here. And this man's only arrived today. And they were just full of shit. I don't know who these coppers were, but they were suited, booted and specialist. They weren't normal cops, that's for sure. Well, we went into the interview room again. And uh, I'd been advised to give a no comment interview this time. And the copper that spoke to me with a very, very posh accent, he was like, so exactly what are you going to tell us? Or don't you know anything? You're just a grunt. You're just a grunt, aren't you? And I was like, no comment. (laughs) And in the end, after about an hour, he went, get him out of my sight. He's nothing. And so they kicked me out of the station. Let me go. And I said to my brief, are we going to make a complaint about this? He said, well, we can do. But according to the books, you weren't in the station yesterday when that happened. Fuck's sake.
He said, if I were you, mate, I'd just go. So I did. I went. Um, they didn't do anything about giving me a lift. My car, or the car I'd been given by the family, had been parked at Leicester Forest. Um, I'd got the keys. They gave me those, and my personal belongings. And thank fuck I had a credit card. And I got on a train, and went home on the train. Well, I got back to the flat, and... uh, I made a phone call and I explained what happened and uh, he said brilliant can you come straight down and I said well I haven't got a car he said well send a car so they sent a car for me and uh, after making sure I wasn't being followed took me back to the locker and there were four of the boys there and we were all sort of you know How's it going? How's it going? I wasn't the only one with injuries, by the way. Uh, In fact, one of the guys had got a fucking bruise on the side of him that hobnailed boot into his uh, ribs, that was. Um, And the member of the family came out and I said, I am really, really sorry. And he said, what are you sorry for? He did exactly what we needed you to do. And it suddenly dawned on me. I thought, can you thick fucker? I wasn't involved in anything to do with the gold. I was just there to take the heat off. That's what the whole thing had been about. We were there to take the heat off certain people. And keep keep the cops busy. And that's what we did. Well, he was extremely grateful. And it was quite funny, really, because I was I was in a bit of a panic. And I was asking about the rest of the boys. And uh, six of us had been... Actually, seven of us had been nicked. Three had got away and actually delivered to the destination. And we were all good. We were all good. We were all okay. And once that news hit me, I was starting to feel a lot better about it all. And then the family member walked down the row of us who had stood there. And he said, you know what, boys? You're in my good books. And then he walked off, nodded to a mate, who gave us a rolled up bunch of notes each. We each got a thousand quid for that. Thousand quid. Back in the day, back then, thousand quid was a shitload of money. It's like five grand in these these days. Thousand pounds for a day's work and having to put up with the cops. They, uh, the family had apparently already organised cover stories. If any of us broke, we never broke. We gave no comments all the way through because that was who we were. That was what we did. And we proved ourselves reliable. And that was the first job, main job, 
they ever gave us. And that paved the way for a whole string of things that they brought us into after that. Making so much money and being trusted, being trusted, being in the circle. Maybe right on the outskirts of it, maybe right on the fringes of it, but just inside. And that gained us huge amounts of respect. Well, I handed over the key and they went and got this car back from Leicester Forest. They were going to do that. We all went down to the pub that night. And the ten of us were there. And we exchanged stories. And... um, A few of the boys... We got to the pub early. A few of the boys came in. And they all sat down. They'd nod and smile. Everybody knew by this point. Everybody. (sighs) And the barman... He looked over. People were buying us drinks all night as well. He looked over. And he pointed at a tray. And a girl came over to our table with a tray. And there were shots of um, some bloody malt whiskey that, you know, was apparently very special. I wasn't a whiskey drinker, but apparently it was. And he said to the whole pub, ladies and gentlemen, and he looked around, he said, the boys, and everybody toasted us. (laughs) It was amazing. It was amazing. And I got so much, I mean, I I shouldn't, but I got so much attention because this fucking great smack on my face. We dined out on that for weeks. We we played it up. People who would never really acknowledge me or the boys or speak to us. All of a sudden we got the head nods as we walked into the pubs or clubs or if we were out somewhere. It was amazing that sort of age to get that sort of respect was just brilliant and then uh, the coup de gras like the icing on the cake of that I'd gone into town with my mum um, because the only real like supermarket supermarket the weekly shop place was Sainsbury's and it was right in the middle of Coventry and uh, I'd gone there to help her carry the bags. And there were two um, young lads as we were coming out. And uh, they're both sort of leaning on the wall, smoking away. And these two young lads, uh, you know, just smiling at each other. And my mum's got maybe three carrier bags and I'm carrying four. And we're carrying them back to my car. And immediately, these guys saw us. I'd seen them. I didn't know them, but I'd seen them. 
They both put the fags on the floor, put the fags out, came running over. They said, can we help you with that, Mrs Burton? <laughs> Let me carry those for you, Mrs Burton. And they carried the bags. And I felt like, million dollars never had the feeling since never will again it was a hell of a thing so let's finish off the story shall we um as is the way with these things one of the guys who was in on the robbery the brinks mat robbery uh worked there he was the inside man and he basically grassed up everybody who was involved. And within, I think it was by the end of December, they had them all. They'd nicked them all and recovered a serious amount of the money. And they all went to the Old Bailey. And I think they all got 25 years for armed robbery. Because they trusted the wrong guy. The security, one of the security guards at Brinksmart, who uh, basically turns supergrass. So, crime doesn't pay. There's a lesson. I hope you've enjoyed this one, guys. This has been number 96. Gold. I'll see you on the dark side. Take care. Welcome to the world of digital sound. Shutting down all systems.